All right, well, good morning. I have the privilege of sharing God's Word with you this morning, and I'm excited to do so. So I will be finishing up our series on Christmas through the eyes, and it's appropriate that I'm the last one because historically and chronologically, the Magi were the last to experience Christmas and experience the uh, incarnation and arriving there with Christ in Bethlehem. So one of the wonderful things about this church is Pastor Nick and the worship team and just how awesome it is to, to hear and worship through song with them. And it's just great how accessible the truth of Scripture and the truth of God is just buried in those songs. And it just comes back to your mind, you know, at, at, at perfect times just to remind you of who God is and who we are and in God's eyes and just the incredible gift that we have in Jesus. But unfortunately for the, uh, for the Magi, their song list is pretty limited. And uh, so we're kind of stuck with uh, We Three Kings of Orient Are. And as we go through this, we'll realize that there are some, some issues in, in, in the title of the song and the song itself as far as what is biblical and what is tradition. So that was written in 1857 by a uh, Pennsylvania Episcopal clergyman, John Henry Hopkins. And you know, traditionally... Uh, there were three magi based on the three gifts. They were even assigned names and personalities and actually descriptions. Um, but that's nowhere in Scripture. Traditionally, also, they arrived on the 6th of January, and, and that was considered to be epiphany in some high church uh, cultures or uh, traditions. But today we're going to look into the Scripture, specifically look at Matthew chapter 2, and just to identify what does God's Word say about the magi, and, and what doesn't it say, and what can we infer from other portions of Scripture and from history itself? So if you would all please stand to honor God and His Word. We'll read Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. We'll be reading from the New American Standard Bible, so please try to follow along in, in your version. So chapter 2, verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judah in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They said to him, In Bethlehem of Judah, for this is what has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler." who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. And when you have found him, report to me so that I too may come and worship him. After hearing the king, they went their way and the star, which they had seen in the east, went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. They opened their treasures, and they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. You may be seated. All right, so who were these magi or wise men, depending on your translation? 
So if you come away with nothing else from this uh, message, you can come away with this. There weren't three of them. They were not kings, and they're not from the Orient. All right? So we can, you might, that might be all you get, and that's fine. Um, so first of all, the word magi, or it comes from the Greek word magos, meaning, you know, it can mean magician, sorcerer. And in this case, you know, these individuals, there were astrologers, astronomers, advisors, kingmakers. Uh, they had evolved from a re- hereditary priesthood, first in the area controlled by Babylon, and then controlled by the Medes and the Persians during the Medo-Persian Empire after they conquered Babylon. By the time of Christ's birth, they were influential in a council that assisted in the election and disposition of rulers in the Persian Empire. So it was a check on the power of the ruler of the Persian Empire. So these individuals were very powerful, very influential. They were considered specifically to be interpreters of dreams and basically the power behind the throne in both the Babylonian and then the Persian Empire. So who are these men, and how did the Magi know about the birth of the Messiah? You know, why did they show up in Jerusalem and then travel on to Bethlehem? What was their interest, and how did they know about it? Most in Israel didn't even know, as we uh, looked at with the shepherds. You know, angels had to announce that this was happening to, to people who were close by, you know, just you know, a mere couple miles away from the birth. They didn't know about it. As you can see from the text, the king didn't know about it. King Herod didn't know anything about this happening. And so most in Israel, most even in Bethlehem didn't know. So how did these magi in Persia know? Well, could have been direct revelation. Obviously, we see in verse 12 that God speaks directly to them, right? And he speaks directly to them through dreams. So that could certainly be it, or at least partially. But you have to remember, historically, Babylon was conquered by Judah. Or excuse me, <laughs> Babylon conquered Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel. So Israel split into the northern and southern kingdoms. The northern kingdom was conquered by Assyria. The southern kingdom was conquered by Babylon. And the very best of the nation of Judah was carried off into captivity. So that's all the treasures that were in the temple and the palace, all the gold and the jewels, and even the people. So those nobles, including the man Daniel and his three friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, were all carried off into captivity. And most commentators believe it is their influence that leads directly to the Magi and their arrival here in Jerusalem and then in in Bethlehem. So you have to kind of remember the story of Daniel. I'm not going to read the whole thing or go into the entire thing. But of course, he was a teenager a Jewish nobleman, a teenager, uh, when Babylon conquered Judah, and he was carried off into Babylon. Now, Babylon at that time, it was the height of the world. You know, it was the very highest of, of pagan nations. It was conquering every other nation surrounding it. It had the very best food, intellectual pursuits, wisdom, knowledge, everything. Babylon was the very top. And yet, Daniel saw all of this and didn't And it was not alluring to him. He looked at it and he rejected it and remained faithful to Christ. Excuse me, remained faithful to God. And he followed God and he realized that he needed to remain true. And indeed he did. And God ultimately uses him to interpret the dreams of Nebuchadnezzar and to become an advisor both to the Babylonian Empire and then into the Persian Empire. So we'll look at... uh, 
Daniel chapter 2, verses 46 through 49. And so this is after King Nebuchadnezzar has basically thrown down the gauntlet, told all the magi, I have had a dream. I want you to tell me what it is and the interpretation. And they say that's impossible. Of course, Daniel says, you know, God can do it. God provides him revelation of what the dream is and the interpretation of the dream. And then Nebuchadnezzar responds in this way, starting in verse 46. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face and did homage to Daniel and gave orders to present to him an offering and a fragrant incense. And the king answered Daniel and said, Surely your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, since you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king promoted Daniel and made him, and gave him many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. And Daniel made a request of the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the administration of the province of Babylon while Daniel was at the king's court. Also, it's important to realize and to remember that not only did Nebuchadnezzar throw down the gauntlet to the Magi, he said, if you can't do this, you're going to be executed. Now, that's not found in you know, the best ten, you know, ten leadership steps. If your subordinates fail, you're gonna, they're going to be executed. But that's what Nebuchadnezzar does. And so they're, they're lost. They're hopeless. And then Daniel arrives on the scene, this young, observant Jew, and provides both the dream and the interpretation, effectively saving their lives, saving this entire group of men, and they're very grateful for it. So Daniel lives a long and very influential life in Babylon and then in the Medo-Persian Empire. So because of his influence, specifically on the Magi, what would they have known about the coming Messiah? Now, we don't know exactly what scripture he shared with them. We know that Daniel was well-learned in the scripture based on his position and based on his faithfulness and based on his, his lifetime of just faithfulness to God. And so what could he have passed on to the Magi? Well, I think that it's likely he passed on at least a few of the prophecies concerning the Messiah. And I'm going to go through some of them today so that you have an understanding of where they would be, their knowledge base, before they trusted God to make this trip to Babylon or to Bethlehem. So you look, first of all, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And we're going to be skipping all over in the Bible. So, you know, if you don't need to turn to all of them, but, uh, you know, just so you know, we're going to be flipping back and forth. So Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. This is right after the fall of man, right after that sin entered the world and destroyed our relationship with God. But there's this ray of hope. And God, speaking to, to Satan, to the serpent, says this in verse 15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. So who is God talking about? The he that shall bruise the head. He's talking about the Messiah. He's talking about the Christ. He's talking about the one who would come, that would right the situation, that would defeat Satan and restore the relationship between us and a loving, holy, perfect God. Then throughout the Old Testament, there are multiple covenants established by God that identify Israel as the nation from which this Messiah, this Christ, will come. 
The first of which is the Abrahamic covenant. When Abraham is called out of Ur of the Chaldees and specifically told, God tells him, you are going to be my people. We look at Genesis chapter 12. I'm going to read verse 3. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Well, how is this one man who has no offspring, how is he going to bless the entire earth? Well, God will build him into a great nation, build his barren wife. You know, through his barren wife, an entire nation will come and rise from him. And out of that nation, the Messiah will be born, the Christ will be born, and it is only through him the entire world will be blessed and reconciled to God. The same promise is given to Isaac and to Jacob and to Judah. And then it is made with a little bit more specificity to David. So commentators will you know, speculate on how many actual covenants they see in the Old Testament or see in the scriptures. You know, Maybe five to eight is kind of the, the general number that is given. But the Davidic covenant, the Messiah, will come from the line of David. And you look at 2 Samuel chapter 7, and I'll read verses 12 through 13. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. And he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So David you know, had a great kingdom, obviously, one of the high points in the history of Israel. His son Solomon was the wisest man who ever lived and was at the very height of this kingdom before it all kind of started to decline based on their lack of faithfulness and lack of obedience to God. So was this the forever king? Of course not. This man died. And his sons were not faithful. And the kingdom split because of it. So this was not the one that they were waiting for. This was not the forever king. This was not the Messiah. This was not the Christ. This is looking forward in history to another time in the future. Also, you can look at Isaiah the prophet. And we've looked at this several times, and it is well known to us during the Christmas season, chapter 9. And I'll read verses 6 through 7. Chapter 6, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness. And then on and forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. So this has never happened. This, is, this has not happened up until this point in history prior to the birth of Christ. This was not fulfilled in the unified kingdom under David or Solomon. This is not, has, had not been completed until this time. And then, of course, Daniel was given some specific direct revelation to him that he recorded in, that we have in the book of Daniel. And I'll read chapter 7, verses 13 through 14. Chapter 13, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like the Son of Man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. So this revelation, along with Old Testament scripture, 
was made known to the Magi through Daniel. God uses history. God uses the diaspora. God uses the judgment of Israel and the removal of those nobles to Babylon and then through in the Medo-Persian Empire. He uses all of that to speak to this group of men and to give them this information, give them this knowledge and this wisdom of the Messiah. And so they were on the lookout for this. They knew that the Messiah was coming. They knew to be ready. That was an introduction. So let's go back to the text. All right. So back to Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judah, in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem. All right, so there we are. We're starting out. Herod the king, very interesting figure. Very intelligent, very conniving. He's a prominent builder. He's considered an architect. He rebuilt the temple. It was a project that continued in the majority of his life and then on after his death before it was completed. But he's also ruthless and cunning and paranoid. And he's willing to murder anyone who's a threat to his throne, including close family members. But as they say, you know, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they're not out to get you, right? And so he had a reason to be worried. Because he was, at best, a vassal king. He had been installed by the government of Rome, by the empire of Rome, as the king of Israel in between the nation, the empire of Persia, and the Roman Empire. So you had you know, the Persians in the east, and then you had the Romans in the west. And then in the middle, you have Israel, this tiny little border nation. He had other reasons not to be all so secure in his position. He wasn't even Jewish. He was Edomian of the line of Edom or Esau, the Edomites. And so he wasn't getting a lot of support from the Jews that still lived there. So he's this king of this border nation between these two great empires, and he is concerned for his status and his throne. The Magi, of course, we've already talked a little bit about them. These are wise men, mystical advisors, magicians, and there's an unknown number of them. Um, you know, obviously, tradition puts it at three based on the gifts, but this is largely this is likely a large entourage. And sorry to burst your bubble on your nativity scenes. They probably weren't riding camels, um, unfortunately, for all of us who were, have those nativity scenes in our minds. They probably weren't riding camels. In fact, they were probably riding horses. This is a large contingent, likely included soldiers, support staff, and a whole host of magi for this long, arduous journey. Now, the old translations, so the King James, talks about the Orient. Now, in our understanding, what Orient means is the Far East, right? Japan, we're in the Orient. Japan, China, the Far East. But the way that it is written, the Orient just means basically oriented based on the where this was written. So it's east of Israel, east of Jerusalem. And what is east of Jerusalem? It's Persia, the empire of Persia. All right, verse 2. Where has he who has been born king of the Jews? 
for we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. Well, this is a problem for Herod because he's the king of the Jews, right? And they're asking him, where is the king of the Jews? And he's sitting there on the throne saying, I am the king of the Jews. Like We're looking for him and they're not looking for his son, one of his sons. They're looking for someone else entirely. They saw his star in the east. A lot of ink has been spilled about this. What is this star that acts so unlike the majority of what our understanding is from our limited point of view of what stars do? So what was this? Was this an actual star? Was this a giant ball of gas burning in the, in, out in the solar system? Potentially. Is it a confluence of planets, a whole bunch of planets that lined up and were very bright during that one moment in time and then shut off for a second and then turned back on after they left Jerusalem and headed into Bethlehem? Maybe. Is it a supernova? Potentially. Is it the Shekinah glory of God? You know, the luminous representation of God's glory that appears in the tabernacle, in the temple, and on the mountain when Moses is speaking with God? Maybe. It could have been any one of these things. All we know is that it does point the Magi directly to Jerusalem and then ultimately to Bethlehem to meet with the Christ child. And of course, that's not normally how these astrological phenomena work, right? That's not normally how stars work. They don't flip on and off. You know, supernovas don't appear and then disappear at random, or at least based on our understanding of these things. However, something that allows me to completely withhold any disbelief is the fact that God made all these things. God made all these systems. God made all of them, spoke them into existence. So if he wants a star to go left, right, upside down, backwards, turn on and off, you know, like a light switch or with a dimmer on it, he can do that. And why do I believe that? Let's look at Genesis, one of the accounts of creation. Genesis 1, chapter 1, verses 16. God made the two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. And he made the stars also. Almost as an afterthought, he mentions the stars. So God absolutely can make any of these things happen and occur. Ultimately, it's what points the Magi to Jerusalem and then to Bethlehem. Now, when did it appear? That's, that's the next question, right? When, when did this glory or this kind of glory, this star, the supernova, when did it appear? Did it appear at the birth of Christ, as traditionally we would think? Did it appear when the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, overshadowed Mary and the Christ was placed in her virgin womb? Maybe. Did it appear at some point in between to allow the travel of the Magi so that they would arrive immediately after the shepherds had left so there wouldn't be any space in Mary's social calendar? I don't know. All I know is what is given in Scripture. And based on several different verses here, I would suggest that it was a later arrival. Most importantly, though, in verse 2, is why did they come? Was this some sort of Middle Eastern, first century power play? Were they scouting out who potentially was the next ruler of the Jews or the leader of Israel? No. They came to worship. They're believers. They believed what God had revealed to them, and they came 
and they worshipped him. That's why they came, and that's what they were doing. All right, let's look at verse 4 through 6 here. Gathering together all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They said to him, In Bethlehem of Judah, for this is what has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So the Magi don't know exactly where he is to be born. All they know is that the Messiah was to be born. They followed the star based on some revelation that they had. They arrived in Jerusalem, and now they need to know the next step. You know, they trusted what they knew. They trusted God for that, that step that they took, and now they're at the next step, and they're asking the question, well, where to go? They don't know, and the king doesn't know either because he's not a Jew, and he's not a believer. So he doesn't know where the Messiah was to be born. But for the scribes and the priests, this was an easy question. That's like asking any one of our kids who go to Sunday school, hey, who built the ark? Noah. Who loves you? Jesus. Where is the Christ to be born? Bethlehem. Everybody knows that because it's in Micah chapter 5, verse 2. And so they're very quick to answer that question. And they know exactly where he is to be born. But one of the most amazing things to me here is that the Magi, these very important men, these learned men, these educated men who have clearly understand the scriptures, show up into Herod's throne room and explain this incredible revelation that they have received and no one goes with them. None of the priests, none of the scribes, not Herod himself, they don't go because they don't believe because that is not how they thought this would happen. This is not the way the Messiah was to be born. He's not supposed to come that way. He's not supposed to show up in, you know, off in some hovel somewhere. There was supposed to be some pomp and circumstance. And that hasn't happened yet. And so they weren't at all concerned that this might actually be the real thing. They didn't come at all. Now the star reappears, the star, the Shekinah glory, reappears and directs them the rest of the way, leading them right to Christ and his parents. Let's look at verse 11. Excuse me. Let's look at verse 7 through 10 first. And Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. And when you have found him, report to me, so that I too may come and worship him. After hearing the king, they went their way, and the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. So, of course, Herod wants to know more about this threat to his throne. You know, he's very concerned, very paranoid about maintaining his power. And so he wants to know, tell me. He's not planning to come and worship, obviously, as we know from verse 16. He's planning on removing this threat to his leadership and to his control. Now, there's no exact time for when the star appeared. But given this answer and given what is said in verse 16, which I'll read now, and so after, you know, after the Magi don't return to him, in verse 16 it says, And then when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, 
he became very enraged and sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all of its vicinity from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the Magi. So the Magi probably told them some time between you know, now and two years as to how long ago they had seen this star, seen this glorious light in the sky. And so Herod, probably being careful, probably did some margin on the other end. Like, all right, well, they said 18 months. I'm going to be sure. I'm going to put it at two years. So this is all you know, extrapolation. But based on what it shows in verse 16, I would put there be a more traditional timing for this star as to when it first appeared, meaning that the Magi were likely the very last to celebrate their first Christmas. So first, let's go to verse 11. After coming into the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. They opened their treasures, and they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Let's stop right there. All right, here's our image. All right, so these images are from a book called Christmas Story. Um, and these illustrations are by John, Jan Pintowski. Uh, and, okay, yeah, we'll go back to this one. So this is them meeting Herod. Uh, obviously, only three magi are pictured. Don't let that alarm you. There's more if you just, like, you know, expand the scope of the picture. I'm sure that there would be more on that on that left side. Um, but it just shows kind of both the scientific and also the faith of these of these men. So, you know, they've got their globe out, they're astronomers, there's astrologers, and here they are also staring at the star in faith. And so they've they've met with the king, and so now it is time to meet with the Christ. And so once they arrive, it says house and it says child. And both of those, uh, most commentators have suggested, mean that there was some time, some potentially significant amount of time that has passed between the time that the Christ was born in the stable and laid in swaddling clothes in the manger. And so they are still living in Bethlehem. They have moved to a house. You know, potentially Joseph has started up his carpentry business and started working there, depending on how long they have been there. And so now the Magi saw the star at the birth. They made preparations to travel. They traveled. They've arrived. And now they're here to worship and to present these gifts. So they've arrived at this house. And this is, you know, depiction of the house is, you know, Joseph's up on the roof trying to fix this thing up, uh, potentially build it for the first time. I don't know. Again, artistic license taken here. But... It's some period of time. And so they've arrived, and when they find them at this house, this very humble dwelling with a teenage mother and a carpenter father, do they immediately turn around and leave? Do they think, this isn't what we were looking for. This is not what we're used to in, in Persia. I mean, we're advisors to kings. We know what earthly kings look like. There's pomp and circumstance and jewels and gold and you know big robes and palaces this doesn't look like a king to us no they don't say that at all they're able to look past that 
they realize God's truth about this infant, about this child. They know that this child is the Christ. And the fact that it says child suggests that it is not an infant, suggests that it is a little bit older. These words aren't you know, exclusively used, but the word for infant is not specifically used. The word for child, which could mean infant, is used here. But this, both of the fact that it was the house, the fact that it says child, and the fact that verse 16, Herod suggests to kill everyone, all the boys, two and under, all leads us to suggest that this is a later arrival. Now, could God have orchestrated it so they show up immediately after the shepherds left? He could have. But that's not what Scripture would suggest. Scripture suggests that it's a later time. The Imagi arrive a little bit later, which makes it fitting that I am the last one in the series to complete the series on Christmas through the eyes of the Magi. All right, so what do they do once they show up and find him in this poor state, in this poor situation? They don't lose heart. They, tr- they still believe that this is the Messiah, this is the Christ. They immediately fall on the ground. They fall on the ground and worship. They are just so thankful that they have been given this opportunity. They rejoice in this revelation that God has given them and this opportunity to worship. And they worship with their best. So they have brought these precious gifts. And these gifts demonstrate who this baby is. The surroundings may not, but the gifts do. This child is royalty. This child is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. You look at gold. It's precious. It's the gift for a king. Emissaries from foreign nations used to bring gold to David and Solomon when they were at the height of their splendor in their palace. Their palace was full of gold. The temple was full of gold, all showing signs of wealth and authority. Frankincense. This is pure incense. This is what was burned in the tabernacle and the temple along with the sacrifices, a pleasing aroma to God. We just finished our series through the seven feasts of Israel. Very often it mentions that incense would be burned along with these sacrifices. This is the gift for a priest. It also shows Christ's divinity, the fact that he is God in human form because it is the incense that would be burned to God. Then you have the myrrh. The myrrh is a fragrant perfume. Women would wear it. It would be mixed with wine to drink. And it was also used to prepare bodies for burial so that the smell of the body would not overpower the mourners before it was buried. This shows that he is our perfect sacrifice. He is the Lamb of God, and it indicates his humanity. He is a man destined to die. Fully God, fully man. Not the subtraction of deity in the incarnation, but the addition of sinless humanity. He is the God-man. Verse 12. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. So the Magi were faithful and obedient to respond to the revelation that God gave them to come, to worship, and also to leave exactly the way God had ordained for them. They are obedient in all of these phases. 
Based on this passage, I see many applications for us, but I'll share with you five of them. They'll be quick. First of all, belief should result in action. The Magi were given revelation. They were given truth through Daniel and also through direct revelation from God himself. And they put that into action. They traveled a great distance, at great expense, and great danger to themselves to worship and to present gifts to God, to present treasures to God in human form. And we should as well. We have far more revelation sitting in our laps right now in the form of the bound word of God than these men ever had in their entire lifetime. Let us be faithful and let, us our, let our belief result in action, both here and wherever we are sent to go. Secondly, it shows me the influence that a few believers, a few faithful men and women can have over hundreds of years on just a, a group of other people. So Daniel, through, through the mysteries of how God works, the diaspora, the removal of the noble from Judah, moving them into Babylon just to survive that, be placed in a high position of authority and influence, also that he can speak to the Magi and that they would be converted, that they would believe, and that they would ultimately be the ones to come and put the stamp of royalty on his son in Bethlehem hundreds of years later after he is born in human flesh. So just a few of us can have that influence if we are faithful. Third, the gospel is for all people. One of the earlier messages was Christmas through the eyes of the shepherds. And of course, the message was for them. The gospel was for them. The announcement, the first announcement of Christmas was made to them. They're Jews, but they were poor, they were unclean, they were uneducated, they were outcasts in society. And yet, the angels came and spoke to them. It wasn't to Herod, it wasn't to the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, it was to them tending their sheep. And then, of course, God comes to the Magi. These are foreigners. These are non-Jews. It's hard to understand, for us to understand, how strange that would be for a Jew to think that the non-Jew, these Persians, would be the ones to get this revelation, to be on the inside track of knowledge. And it was because of their faithfulness. It was because of their belief. It wasn't because of anything else. God uses these men, these kingmakers, these foreigners, these intelligentsia. He works throughout history in order to bring them to Bethlehem. So the gospel is for the shepherd. The gospel is for the magi. The gospel is for everyone in between. It's for American, for Japanese. It is for all of us. It is for the entire world. It's the only way in which we are reconciled to a holy, perfect God. Four. Jesus Christ is to be worshipped. The Magi understood this. They came to worship him. They came with their best, and he deserves our best. No one else and nothing else does. He is jealous for our affection, and rightly so, because he is the only one who is worthy of it. Lastly, Jesus is the only way to salvation. If you look at these gifts, 
Look at the gold. He is our forever king. You look at the frankincense. He is our great high priest. You look at the myrrh. He is the lamb of God, our perfect sacrifice. He is the perfect combination of all previous intermediaries between us and a loving God who wants to reconcile us to himself. Please pray with me. Lord God, we just thank you so much for this morning, for this opportunity once again to open up your word and to learn more about you, learn about your faithfulness to us and how you have just worked throughout time in order to reconcile us to you. We just ask as we go from this place that your word would be implanted deep in our hearts and that your Holy Spirit would guard it and encourage us to live out our beliefs and live out our faith. In Jesus' name, amen.